Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of four rounds of frightening fiction about evil entities, terrifying traditions, malevolent meetings, and local legends. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Casey Pierce to life are voice talents Luis Bermudez and Elijah Ramsey. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) Our first tale tonight was written by Casey Pierce. 
perhaps better known in creepypasta circles by their username Infernal Nightmare 333, and it's performed by Nikolai Porter. Without further ado, I present to you The Devil Game. This is a set of instructions for how to speak with the devil, which, as those of you with any sort of brains at all might note, is a patently moronic proposition on the face of it, one likely to culminate in any number of thoroughly unpleasant fates. Honestly, it would be smarter to publish your credit card number on Facebook, or take up a career in crocodile wrestling. But then, that isn't going to stop you, is it? Not if you're sincerely interested, at least. Technically, if you do everything just right, there's a fair chance you'll walk away scot-free. And that seems to be reason enough for some people to decide that it's a good idea, especially if you're the fate-tempting, thrill-seeking, scared junkie type, or the desperate type. Which brings me to a point of clarification I ought to make. This is not a manual for making any kind of Faustian bargain. You know, the whole sell-your-soul type of deal. Although if you happen to bring it up in conversation, he certainly wouldn't be one to refuse. Following through with such a foolhardy bargain, however, would necessitate removing some of the protections which you will put in place for your conversation, and I don't think I need to spell out for you why that would be a bad idea. If you are mathematically impaired enough to want to trade something that will last an infinite number of years for something that might last about 90 tops, there are plenty of other rituals out there for you to follow. This one, if performed correctly, should only allow the two of you to talk. This, perhaps, begs the question of why exactly you would want to speak with the devil in the first place. Maybe some of you just like the idea of making small talk with extremely dangerous occult entities, but for the sake of the human race, I hope most of you aren't quite that stupid. Short answer is, he knows things. Things that some of you may have a deep, vested interest in finding out. I mean, he's not omniscient or anything, much as he would like to pretend otherwise. He's not God, but he's definitely got a supernatural advantage over the kind of knowledge any human would be able to obtain. For example, he wouldn't be able to predict when the next world war will happen, or tell you the cure for cancer, but he could very well be able to predict the winning numbers of tomorrow's $500 million Powerball drawing, or tell you what deadly, undiagnosed condition might be afflicting one of your loved ones. Of course, the Prince of Darkness doesn't just go around giving out winning lottery numbers to anybody who asks, and trusting any sort of information obtained from a being commonly described as the father of all lies is liable to land you in a worse situation than you were when you started. However, if you're really dead set on finding something out, and you've exhausted all other options, there is a way to try to get accurate information out of the guy. You see, like so many of the urbane villains in popular culture, the devil has a bit of a penchant for games and gambling. Of course, the reason he likes him so much is that he almost always wins. Unless you happen to be a fiddler named Johnny, or are being represented by Daniel Webster, you're probably going to get your ass handed to you. But if you're determined enough to want to face the risks and the long odds, there's a certain game the two of you could play to try to win the information you need. First things first, though. We'll start off with a description of the summoning process, then get into the rules of the game, some tips for how to play, and finally, of course, the inevitable litany of arcane shit that might go horribly wrong. In order to contact your conversational partner, you'll need to go to a church at midnight. It doesn't matter what kind of church, large or small, old or new, liberal or conservative, just as long as you're sure it will be empty. The last thing you want is for some preacher to walk in on you while you're in the middle of this, for the sake of the preacher's well-being as much as your own. The process will probably work best if you try it on a new moon, or a full moon, or Friday the 13th, or Halloween. The actual day is less important than the psychological effect it has on you. 
As long as you don't try it on Christmas Eve or something stupid like that, you should be fine. The time is important though. You don't have to start or end your ritual at exactly 12 a.m. midnight Greenwich Atomic Time or anything. But as a general rule of thumb, you ought to show up a bit before midnight and have everything set up by no later than hmm, 10 or 15 after. Show up a lot before midnight if you don't know how you're getting in. Shockingly enough, most houses of God do tend to lock their doors at night, at least if there's no one to watch over them. And remember, we want it empty, got it? There are, of course, certain things you need to bring, and certain things you can't bring. For this ritual, you will need a full can of salt. You won't need to use all of it, but it's always better to have more than you need than to have less. Seven candles, red or white being preferable. Something to light the candles with. You would be shocked how often people forget this. Occult ritual or not, they aren't going to magically light themselves. A length of red string, rope, yarn, or thread. A full-length floor or wall mirror. Ideally, you'll want to find one of those already present in the church. They're a bit unwieldy to be lugging around with you during a break-in. However, if there really aren't any there, you'll have to bring your own. You might also find it useful to bring some markers, pencils, paper, a flashlight, and any sort of tools that might be necessary to secure your entrance into the church. You will not be permitted to bring any sort of electronic or timekeeping device. This includes all cell phones, smartphones, tablets, e-readers, mp3 players, PDAs, calculators, wristwatches, pocket watches, kitchen timers, hourglasses, etc, etc, etc. Seriously, it's worse than the SAT. If you're one of those people that has your smartphone practically wired into your brain, don't worry. You can bring those things with you to the church as long as you leave them outside the room in which you'll be doing the ritual. If you brought a flashlight, helpful for finding your way around without attracting unwanted attention, leave that outside too. Also, don't bring any sort of religious paraphernalia to protect you, especially if it pertains to the Abrahamic religions. And yes, if those gothy black cross earrings you're wearing are hanging right side up, they count. If you have any kind of holy symbols like that with you, the devil will simply refuse to show up. Don't worry, you're not going in totally unprotected. In fact, most of the supplies with you are not for any sort of devil summoning ritual, but for your own protection. Old superstitions and folk magic remedies to guard oneself from evil. From what I know of it, the effect's mostly based on the power of belief, so there are probably numerous other objects, artifacts, and procedures that would work just as well. If you'd like to risk being left helpless at the mercy of the devil in order to test that theory, feel free to experiment. However, for those of you without a psychotic death wish, I'd recommend sticking to the ritual as follows. Once you're sure you have all the right supplies with you, make your way into the church and find some place to set up. It can be anywhere, from the main sanctuary where the services are held, to a Sunday school classroom, to a walk-in supply closet, as long as you have a sufficient amount of open floor space and are certain not to be disturbed. Set up your mirror first. This is where the devil will appear when you summon him. As such, you mustn't complete the summoning until you've laid down certain wards around it. First, surround the mirror with an unbroken circle of salt. If the mirror is hanging on a wall or door, lay down a semicircle around it instead, making sure that the salt touches the wall at both ends. Then, wrap your red string around the mirror several times. The color red, especially red string, is symbolic of protection in the folklore of many cultures and religions. This is also why red candles are a good idea. Speaking of the candles, set them up around the outside of your circle of salt, spaced at relatively even intervals. No, you do not have to get out measuring tape and make it exactly perfect, but do at least try to make it look as though it was set up by someone old enough to be trusted with matches. Light the candles in a clockwise fashion, being careful not to disturb the salt. If you break the circle, you'll have to start all over again. Once all the candles are lit and burning strongly, your protective wards are complete. You are now ready to proceed to the actual summoning.
To do so, you must first get the devil's attention and demonstrate your resolve by performing some sort of sacrilegious act in the holy space. Turning a crucifix or cross upside down is fairly conventional, but it's not the only option. For example, I know of a kid who once fulfilled this requirement by scribbling obnoxious graffiti all over a painting of Jesus hanging in his Sunday school classroom. The nice thing about turning a cross upside down is that once you've finished your encounter, assuming you survived it in one piece, you can just flip it right side up again and no one's the wiser, sidestepping the relatively minor but still irritating risk of having your Sunday school turn into a reenactment of the Spanish Inquisition for the next month and a half. After you've finished doing whatever offensive thing you decide on, shut all the doors to the room and turn off all the lights so that the space is lit only by the candles. Face the mirror and stare deeply into it, concentrating on your desired outcome. There are no incantations, no arcane strings of Latin that you have to recite. Just look into the mirror and wish as hard as you can for the devil to appear there. After a few moments of this, when you feel ready, close your eyes and count to ten. Then open them. If all has gone correctly, you will no longer see your reflection. You will be looking at the devil. Or at least, looking at the way the devil has chosen to appear to you. Chances are he won't look like your conventional red, horned demon with goat legs and a pitchfork, nor any other sort of terrible apparition. No point in scaring you off now. Better to lure you in, make you feel safe. To that end, he generally takes on the appearance of a fairly average, nondescript human being. If anything, he's prone to vanity and will lean towards the more attractive end of the spectrum. The only real frightening part of him will be his eyes. No matter how hard he tries, he can't hide the sinister gleam smoldering deep within them. The malevolent amusement and hunger, like the eyes of a spider contemplating a fly struggling in its web. They're supremely confident, those eyes. Confident and without pity. Don't look into them too deeply, or you'll begin to feel helpless and paralyzed with dread, losing your hope and your will to fight. Since you'll probably be just standing there staring at him for a few moments, having on some level expected for the ritual to fail, he'll initiate the conversation by asking what it is you desire from him. If you can gather your wits enough to string together a coherent sentence, you should respond with something like, I wish to challenge you in a game of question and response. Even if you don't get the words exactly right, he'll know what you mean, and he'll accept your request with a wide, predatory grin of anticipation. He's been playing this game for a long time, you see, and he's very good at it. Most humans, on the other hand, are very bad at it. This gives him a chance to, at the very least, thoroughly mess with your mind, and at most, well... We'll save that for the litany of shit that could go wrong. You'll have to play it very smart to avoid justifying his expectations. The general rules of the game are very simple, with a few caveats that can make things more complicated. He'll begin by asking you a question. He always initiates the game. It can be anything, from a piece of obscure trivia, to a riddle, to an extremely personal inquiry. Don't worry, you won't be immediately plunged into hell if you answer wrong or anything like that. As a matter of fact, he won't even tell you whether you've got the answer right or wrong. After you've answered his question, you get to ask one in return. Now, here's where the consequences of your response come in. If you answered his last question correctly, he will respond to your question as honestly and accurately as he is able. However, if you answered it incorrectly, he is free to lie to you as he sees fit. Perhaps you've asked him something you're better off not knowing. He'll tell you the truth about it anyway. More likely, he'll feed you the most insidious, damaging lie he can come up with. Either way, after he's responded, he'll ask you another question, and the process will repeat over and over until you decide to call it quits. Now, you may be sitting there thinking that it sounds fairly easy to get the information you need. All you have to do is wait for a question you can answer correctly, and then take that opportunity to ask him what you really want to know, ignoring everything else he's said. Well, it's not that simple. 
The devil will never give you an easy question, one that you can be completely sure of the answer to. He may instead give you questions that you may have some vague knowledge of, that you think maybe you know the answer to but aren't really confident, thus forcing you to endlessly second-guess yourself, obsessing over whether or not you can trust the information that he gave you next. Perhaps you'll think what he said was a lie, wish it was a lie, but be eternally consumed by doubt, unable to fully convince yourself that you were wrong. Or perhaps you'll have to make a huge choice based on the information that he gave you and be tormented by fear and indecisiveness as you realize that your fate, and perhaps that of others as well, rests entirely upon whether or not you are able to correctly recall some arcane piece of trivia that you don't even remember now. You'll never remember the exact questions the devil gave you, by the way. That would make it too easy for you to go back and check on your responses. Or maybe, instead of testing your knowledge, he'll ask you something personal. Something you lie to even yourself about. You'll answer back to him, thinking maybe you've gotten the question correct. No, I don't resent my sister. Yes, I would turn the money into the police. But he'll know better. He'll know better than you do that you're lying. And he'll lie to you in return. And you'll believe him. You'll believe him until you are no longer able to deceive yourself. And by then, it might be too late. Or maybe, maybe he won't even give you a chance to get an accurate response at all. Maybe he'll just ask you endless strings of completely impossible questions, making you more and more frustrated and disheartened as you realize you'll never be able to force him to tell you the truth. Questions like, what was the exact height of Mount Everest in centimeters in the year 1666? Or, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Although, knowing his sense of humor, if he ever asked the latter, he might consider African or European a correct response. There are a couple ways to short-circuit this particular strategy, however. Additional rules and courses of action that might make the game more interesting, and prevent you from being stonewalled completely. Although, in all honesty, he probably wants you to try for one of those options anyway. The first is to ask him a riddle instead of a question. If you somehow manage to stump him, and he answers the riddle wrong or gives up, he'll be obligated to give you a truthful response to your next question. If he answers the riddle correctly, once again, don't worry, he won't pounce on you like a sphinx or drag you into hell. What will happen is that he will get a pass, allowing him to lie in response to one question he would otherwise be obligated to answer truthfully. Honestly, if he gets a pass, you might as well just give up and quit the game right there. It's nearly impossible to determine when he's telling you the truth under the best of conditions. Adding another layer of complexity by constantly trying to figure out when and if he's used his pass? It's about enough to make any normal person's brain explode. There's no way, just forget it. The second option is for you to take a dare from him. If you accept it and vow to follow through, then once again you'll have to answer his next question truthfully. If you choose instead to reject it, he'll get another pass. Now before you freak out and reject that whole idea completely, you should know that he won't ask you to do anything overly dramatic or unspeakably evil, like blow up a hospital or murder somebody. As a rule of thumb, most dares won't involve direct loss of life or any major felonies. However, they certainly won't be easy. Inflicting severe pain on yourself, doing something that terrifies the shit out of you, cutting off a treasured relationship, publicly humiliating yourself or someone you love. All of these things and more, things you might not have even been able to imagine, are completely on the table. If you're willing to go that far, to put yourself in that kind of position, you'll get your answer. However, if he manages to come up with the one thing you know you simply can't or won't do, well, then once again, you might as well just quit. One last thing. Don't think you can just tell him you're going to do something and then not do it. If you accept a dare and then don't follow through with it, well, let's just say there will be consequences.
Just suck it up and keep your promise, no matter what it was. Trust me, you'll be better off that way. Finally, when you've gotten the information you wanted or given up on it completely, you may end the ritual by simply thanking the devil for accepting your request, bowing politely at the waist, and bidding him farewell. The surface of the mirror will seem to swim and flicker for a moment, and then you will be looking at your own reflection again. Only when you are absolutely certain that you are looking into your own two eyes again, may you turn away from the mirror, flip the lights back on, and begin dismantling your protections. Now, and this is important, even if you haven't gotten the information you wanted, you must end the ritual in this manner before 66 minutes have elapsed. Well, I suppose that technically you have 66 minutes and 6 seconds. Subtle, right? But if you're seriously going to try to cut it that close without any sort of timekeeping device, you're probably screwed anyway. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that you keep to this time limit. I'll save the reason behind that for the end, but don't skip ahead. I've still got a few important tips on how to play. 1. Be very careful about what sort of personal information you give out. Try not to talk about yourself, especially your emotions and problems, any more than absolutely necessary. This guy knows human psychology like the back of his hand, and he will get inside your head. It's like talking to Hannibal Lecter. Give him enough to work with, even if you don't believe a single word he says, he will still find ways to fuck with your mind like nobody's business. If anything he asks you makes you even remotely uncomfortable, do not hesitate to lie through your teeth. There will be plenty of other questions. On a similar note, try to keep the game on track and moving briskly. Unstructured interactions of any kind are to be avoided. Chances are that at some point he will try to draw you off on a tangent, discussing something that fascinates you, analyzing a response you've given him, or finding some other excuse to speak at length without moving the game forward. This is not only a waste of valuable time, but also another excellent opportunity to mess with your mind. If you choose to give him a riddle, use one you've made up yourself. If your riddle has ever been written down anywhere at all, from the pages of The Hobbit to some long-lost tome of ancient magic, he will already know the answer. That said, it has to be a legitimate riddle. You can't just ask something like, what's green has ten legs and hops, and then claim for some inexplicable reason that the answer was marshmallows. Nor can you ask him a straight question like, what have I got in my pocket? He probably knows that anyway. There are no hard and fast rules to determine whether a riddle makes sense or not, but you're a reasonable human being. Your ancestors ate from the Tree of Knowledge. Please, for the love of crap, use common sense. 4. If you choose to take a dare, there is a slight chance that the devil will ask you to do something easy. Deliver a letter, for instance, or scribble a ten-digit number in a public bathroom stall. If he does ask you for something like this, and you have even a shred of common decency in you, do not accept. Chances are that he's using you to further some sinister plot, one liable to ruin a lot of lives and harm a lot of people. Who knows? Maybe you're the type of person who really doesn't mind throwing an unknown number of total strangers under a bus to find out what you want to know, but at least be aware that that is what you're doing. 5. Last but not least, be very aware of the time. It might be helpful to do some practicing beforehand and get a feel for how long an hour is without a watch. The devil will probably put off discussing the things you're most keen to find out for as long as he can, and as you near the 66-minute deadline, he'll start trying harder and harder to distract you, captivate you, and otherwise keep you playing until it's too late. He'll string you along, feed you little glimmers of false hope, keep you thinking, just a few more minutes, I'm almost there. Don't fall for it. Don't go over the time limit, no matter what. Now, you might be thinking that this game doesn't really sound all that dangerous so far. Threats of psychological damage rarely seem to carry the same weight as threats of physical damage, even though their costs are often just as great. 
there are plenty of ways for you to seriously screw yourself over, both physically and mentally, not to mention spiritually. And it is with these that I will conclude, in the vain hope that they may make some sort of impression. First, while you are speaking with the devil, do not let him out of your sight. Keep staring into the mirror no matter what happens. He will undoubtedly try various tricks to make you look away. You will hear noises behind you, feel eyes on the back of your neck, see shadowy phantoms writhing in the depths of the mirror. A cold breath will blow upon you from behind, smelling like the crypt. A deep silence will settle, only to be interrupted by a loud smack directly behind your head, giving you just about the worst jump scare you've ever had. Hell, the devil may even abandon a measure of his own dignified facade and give a sudden jump of faint shock, shouting loudly and pointing behind you with a very convincing look of terror on his face. Whatever he might test you with, you must not look away from him. If you look away, if you lose sight of him completely, even for one second, you will look back at the mirror to find him gone. Well, not gone. Out of the mirror. In the room. With you. Exactly how much of your body the police will find the next morning and what state it's in will depend entirely upon what sort of mood he's in. The same goes if you break any of the protections you laid down before beginning the ritual. Interrupting the circle of salt, letting the red string unwind, knocking over a candle or letting one go out. Any of these will free him from the mirror and then... Well, you're all a bunch of creative horror junkies. I'm sure you can fill in the blanks. On a different topic, you may reach a point in the game, probably after a long series of maddeningly impossible questions, where the devil asks you the deceptively simple question, what is your full name? You must not give it to him. Names can be things of great power, although the devil will, of course, already know your name. Telling it to him yourself is akin to asking a vampire into your home. Your name is deeply synonymous with your own inner self, thus giving him your name is powerfully symbolic of giving him yourself. If you are foolish enough to make this mistake, all of your protections will be for naught, and he will seize upon your unwitting offer with malicious glee, stealing away your soul and dragging it back with him into hell. At least this way, the police will find a complete, identifiable body. As a matter of fact, your vacant shell will be totally unblemished, seemingly having dropped dead of sheer terror. Last, but certainly not least, there's the matter of what happens if you go over the time limit. This is arguably the worst thing that you can do. You won't think so at first. The devil will give you no indication that you have in fact exceeded the time limit, and you will conclude the ritual as if nothing had gone wrong. Perhaps as the devil's image in the mirror trembles and gives way, you'll see a particularly nasty, triumphant smirk flash across his face, but this will be easily dismissed as your imagination. You'll turn the lights back on, gather your belongings, and leave the room. But when you open the door, you will see nothing. That's right, nothing. Just a flat, white void extending infinitely in all directions. Only the room which was reflected in the mirror will now exist. Incidentally, if you turn back to face the mirror again, you may catch a glimpse of your own reflection. Perhaps it will even turn and favor you with a smirk and a cheeky wave before sweeping out the door into the perfectly normal church hallway outside. As you may have already figured out, you yourself are no longer in the church. Your soul is now trapped in the mirror and the devil has taken liberty of possessing your body now that you are no longer using it. Pound on the glass and scream all you like, you'll never get out on your own, and no exorcist can help you. But don't worry, it's not like you're in hell, right? At least, not necessarily. What you have to understand, see, is that a human soul, stripped bare of its flesh, is a deeply volatile and vulnerable thing, especially when trapped in the land of the living. 
you are now an entity of purely mental properties, and as such, the barriers between what is real to you and what is imaginary have been completely dissolved. As you fill that reflected room with your anger, your sorrow, your fear at being trapped, these emotions will begin to coalesce, given form by your mind. If you're not particularly imaginative, these creatures may not be too terrible, may not be able to inflict too much horror and pain. With time, you may even be able to teach yourself to get rid of them. If, however, yours is a mind haunted by monsters, a mind that is vibrantly creative and imaginative, and more than unusually twisted, well, there's no telling what horrors might come clawing their way out of the maelstrom, tasting sweet release from the confines of your subconscious, hungering for your terror and suffering. They will refuse to be banished, dragging you kicking and screaming into an endless positive feedback loop of pain and fear. Needless to say, if you're a regular patron of websites like this, you're probably pretty well fucked. There's only one way to find release from the mirror and the world that you've created therein. They say that if you call the devil once more and ask him to free you from the mirror, he'll be willing to take you out. For the usual fee, of course. Who knows? Maybe if your imagination is twisted and powerful enough to create a personal hell that leaves you begging for the real thing, those talents might be put to good use. There are over 7 billion people in the world, after all. Even the devil himself can't be messing with all their minds at once. Talented help is always appreciated. Of course, the corollary to your being trapped inside the mirror is that the devil now gets to do whatever he wants in your body until sunrise. At around that time, your body will mercifully drop dead from the strain of the possession. Autopsy will probably identify the cause as some sort of coronary event. Don't get too relieved, though. He's perfectly capable of stirring up plenty of trouble in those few hours. For instance, he may decide to do something big and dramatic, like purchase a large meat cleaver and go on a murder spree, starting with the names in your address book and working his way out to complete strangers if he has time. Or perhaps he'll focus on only one person, someone who trusts you completely, using your persona to get him or her alone and vulnerable, and then... Well, no need to describe it here. Once again, I'm sure you can think of a few things. Starting to see why I call this the worst outcome yet? Of course, there's also a chance he won't lay a finger on any of your loved ones, instead deciding to do something a little more subtle, more insidious. Like drop off a few nondescript, unmarked packages on certain doorsteps in the dangerous part of town, or locate a particular dusty, age-yellowed text in the storeroom of your local library and intentionally misfile it in the young adult literature section, or whisper seven very choice words into the ear of the distracted-looking young redhead waiting for the 3 a.m. subway train. Or maybe he'll decide that, in this age of waning superstition, not enough people are getting interested in his games, and the knowledge of them is in danger of being lost. Maybe he'll decide he needs to get the word out there a bit more, attract some new suckers, <laughs> challengers. Maybe he'll take a quick peek at your browser history, see where the impressionable, curious minds are hanging out these days. Maybe he'll even write a quick tutorial. In modern parlance, rather than some inscrutable, obsolete demonological text, post it on the internet and see how many bites he gets. <laughs> Maybe I really shouldn't have gone there. But you've made it this far without shying. A little twist at the end isn't going to put you off, is it, dear reader? I'm sure there are plenty of intrepid adventurers among you with burning questions you'd like answered. And you're all a smart bunch. You know the pitfalls, you know the conventions. You live and breathe this sort of thing, do you not? 
There's no way you'd fall into any of the obvious traps, right? You're not some dick or Jane off the street, after all. You'd be bringing a whole new level of competition. You would... Oh, excuse me just a moment. I think I hear someone calling for me. What? You want out that badly already? Must be one hell of an imagination you've got on you. Perfect. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Devil Game, as written by Casey Pierce, a.k.a. Infernal Nightmare 333, and performed by Nikolai Porter. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by author Tobias Wade and brought to life by Lady McCreepsta. Without further ado, I present to you, my family tradition is to feed the spirit. It's funny how the strangest traditions seem ordinary when you've grown up around them. One of my friends can't get through Thanksgiving dinner without someone spanking the turkey. And another kid in my high school said they threw a tea party to celebrate every A. I've heard about another family who never wore clothes at home. The poor kid couldn't figure out why everyone started laughing at him when he visited a friend's house and promptly began to undress. It simply hadn't occurred to him that nobody else lived quite the same way. And why should it? None of their traditions were more arbitrary than a cake on your birthday or an inside tree on Christmas. My name is Elizabeth, and my family has their own tradition. Every night after dinner, my dad would take a plate full of leftovers and bring it down to the basement. Every morning, it would be clean. My father said it was for the spirit of the house, and my mom would just roll her eyes and smile. My dad is a big man, six foot four and over 250 pounds, and it wouldn't have surprised either of us if he just wanted to save a little extra for a midnight snack. I guess I never gave it much thought until my history class watched a video on the Black Death in Europe. They talked about how the rats would infest granaries and spread disease, and how some people actually exasperated the problem by leaving food out to appease the angry spirits. I mentioned how we always leave out a plate for our spirit, and my whole class seemed mortified by the thought. The teacher, Mr. Hallwatt, 
spent the rest of the class blatantly circumventing my desk as though I was the one carrying the plague. That night, I had a terrible nightmare about rats swarming through the house and eating our leftover food. I woke in a cold sweat, lying half awake for a long time as my sleepy brain tried to separate the quiet night from my encroaching dreams. I was about to drift back to sleep when the pitter-patter of light feet clearly distinguished itself in the still air. I was fully awake now, lying very still with my ears straining against the oppressive dark. Scratch, 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 like fingernails dragging along a rough piece of wood. I pulled the blankets up over my head, more to block out the sound than to offer any real protection. Maybe this had been going on a long time, and I simply hadn't distinguished the sound from the creaking house or the night air playing through the wind chimes. Now that I was focusing on it, though, I couldn't hear anything else. I thought about calling for mom, but I was 15 years old and trying to build a case to convince them that I was mature enough to have my own car. Running around crying about a nightmare was as good as giving a murder jury my bloody axe. I crept out of bed in my underwear, using the flashlight on my phone to steal through the hallway and down the stairs. The sound grew louder as I approached the basement door. If this was a rat, then it had to be the biggest rat in the history of the world. I froze at the sound of a chair being pushed across the concrete floor. Half of me wanted to turn on the light to scare it off, but the other half declared much more loudly that it was better not to risk being seen. I turned off my own flashlight and carefully opened the door. Something snarled and I immediately shut it again. I pressed my back to the door and tried to catch my breath. I hadn't realized how fast I was breathing or how loud. I let the air out in a gasp and slowly inhaled through my nose, trying to be as quiet as I could. Scratch, scratch, scratch. Right on the other side of the door. I turned around and saw the doorknob beginning to turn. There's no way it was a rat in there. I can't explain how my curiosity overpowered my fear in that moment, but I put my hand on the doorknob too. I must have believed my dad when he said it was the spirit of the house. We had been taking care of it after all, so why would it want to do me harm? The door opened, and I stood face to face with a pale girl a few years younger than me. Her sunken dark eyes vanished beneath her mangy bangs, and her lace nightgown failed to conceal the terrible thinness of her limbs. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. I slammed the door as hard as I could and turned to run. I sprinted up the stairs, locking my room door behind me and diving into bed. I held my breath until it felt like I would burst, until there, the pitter-patter of soft feet climbing the stairs and approaching my room. 
the doorknob began to rattle. I couldn't hold it in any longer. All that breath I was holding in was released in one noisy rush, and I screamed for all that I was worth. The doorknob stopped and the light sprang to life around the house. In about a minute, there was a pounding on my door. Honey? Everything okay in there? It was Dad. I ran to him and unlocked my room. He was standing there, looking dazed and confused, ready to collapse back into bed. Now that the lights were on and he was here, I felt like an idiot for being afraid. I'd feel even more stupid telling him about the girl. Sorry, I said. I thought I heard something downstairs. Damn, who needs an alarm when you can scream like that? He said. It was probably just a bad dream. Sorry for waking you. Dad looked around behind him, making sure we were alone. Then he leaned in close and whispered, Was it coming from the basement? I nodded. His smile was nothing but relief, and I couldn't help but feel it too. At least, until he added, That's just the spirit, honey. Don't bother it, and don't tell mom, okay? It's not going to hurt you. I nodded. I didn't know what else to do. He grinned and ruffled my hair before plodding back to his room. I gave the empty stairs a quick glance before locking myself in again and climbing back into bed. I don't need to tell you that I didn't sleep until the sun began to repaint my room. I slept in late that day, but by nightfall, I was ready for answers. I tried asking Dad again, but he just told me every house had a spirit and not to worry about it. He must have been lying, though, considering how my class reacted, and it was clear he didn't want to talk about it. That's why I waited until both my parents were in bed to creep down to the basement and wait. The basement door was open when I got there. I turned the light on in the kitchen which connected to it, but didn't dare go down the stairs. Three pieces of leftover pizza sat in their box on the table and I poured a large glass of soda to go with it. I just sat there with my hands folded in front of me, waiting for her to come again. If she was a friend of the house, then I wanted to meet her, and if she wasn't, well... Surely we'd know by now. My mistake was to watch the door. She was corporal. She ate food. She turned doorknobs. She must go through doors, right? Wrong. Despite my resolve, it was impossible to hear the scratching sound above my head without my entire body tensing up. I watched a ventilation grate in the roof slide out of place and then the girl dropped through as lightly as a shadow. Her hair was hanging over her face, but I could imagine it all too clearly as the animal's snarl began to rise in her throat. She was as alien to me as death. I didn't even know if she could speak or understand. Her movements were erratic and unpredictable. Her eyes darted like a caged animal. But... 
we did have one thing in common which has bridged greater differences than ours. We both liked pizza, and when I offered her some, she smiled. The girl swiftly choked all three pieces down with savage gulps, although I was able to make out a few of her muttered words which she slipped in between. Kevin, my dad, won't let me go. It's okay, I don't want to leave. He takes care of me. He said he loves me. He promised to marry me when I turned 13. Stay in the kitchen, okay? I said. I hoped she didn't notice the revulsion in my voice. I couldn't believe what she was saying. I couldn't believe any of this, and I didn't know how to handle it alone. I wanted Dad to come and tell me it was all going to be okay again, but... If what she was saying was true, I came back in five minutes with mom instead. It was pretty tricky shaking her so that dad didn't wait too, but as soon as I mentioned the spirit, she was out of bed in an instant. She said she never believed in that sort of thing, but the wild fear in her eyes made me think that could be a lie. When we got back to the kitchen, the pale girl was still chugging through the soda which sprayed her face with foam. Who are you? What are you doing in my house? My mother roughly pushed me behind her. I pushed back. It's okay, Mom. She's not going to hurt us. She needs our help. I was beginning to regret telling Mom what the girl told me. I'm Sandy, the pale girl said. Who are you? I'm Kevin's wife, that's who. The one you're making up lies about. My mom took an indignant step forward. I tried to hold her back, but she was livid. You better tell me how you broke in, or I'm going to call the police. I didn't break in. The pale girl stood from the table and faced us belligerently. Kevin brought me here. He loves me. Maybe my mom was angry because she thought the girl was lying, but... I think it was because she was afraid Sandy was telling the truth. I should have tried harder to stop her, but I hadn't expected her to snap like that and slap the girl across the face. Sandy's head turned sharply from the blow, but then began turning back in small, jerky increments. I think my mom was too angry to even notice the bones rearranging themselves in Sandy's neck as it turned. You come into my house steal food from my family and make up these disgusting lies about my husband? Mom was usually the sweetest thing in the world, but she had a temper that sometimes took hours to wind down. Mom, you've got to stop. I don't care if you've got nowhere else to go. Where I'm from, you've got to ask before you take something. Mom, just look at her. Can't you tell she isn't normal? Now, who else have you been telling this perverted trash to? Sweet Jesus, I want you out. Out of my house right this instant. What's all that noise down there? My dad thundered into the room. He froze mid-step as he instantly appraised the situation. Dear God, Kathy, have you lost your mind? My mind? My mom screamed, turning to face dad. Don't tell me you're going to defend that creature in our house. I only hear one of you yelling, and don't you dare call Sandy a creature. I'd never seen either of them so worked up. 
I think I was the only one who heard Sandy whispering. Is it true? It wasn't just the girl's voice that wavered. Her whole body seemed to somehow glitch and distort like a corrupted video. He married her? He lied to me? She looked absolutely heartbroken. I couldn't even begin to formulate a response. Tell me the truth, Sandy insisted. Does Kevin still love me? How was I supposed to know? I looked helplessly between mom and dad as they yelled at each other, and I was just stressed and overwhelmed and scared. The idea of my dad being with this child almost made me sick. All I could tell is that she shouldn't be here. I shook my head. No, he doesn't, I said. He loves my mom. You should just go. Thanks for telling me, Sandy replied. I'm going to get even now. Please, don't watch. Mom didn't see it coming. The air was distorted with a pale blur, and before I could even open my mouth, I saw thin white fingers tearing out my mother's throat. Most of her neck was still intact, but the trachea was pulled straight out through the skin. I don't think she suffered much on account of how quick it was, but that was a very small comfort. Dad wasn't so lucky. I thought he would have a chance to fight her off because of his size, but he didn't even put up his arms to defend. He just stood there until the white fingers punched through his chest and ripped out his heart. There was a horrible moment where the heart was entirely out of the chest but still tethered by a network of veins and arteries and I could see the strain on his face while she held it in her hands. I never forgot you were the last words he ever said. Sandy distorted again and then she was gone, fleeing back down the basement stairs and wailing like a little girl. I rushed over to my dad but he was already dead. When the police swept the house later that night, they didn't find anyone in the basement. They listened to my statement, but I didn't see any of them writing it down and I don't think they believed me. I was sobbing so incoherently, I wouldn't have trusted my testimony either. I just know what I experienced and later what I saw. The police investigation did unearth a collection of photographs hidden in a shoebox in the basement. Sandy was in them, except she glowed from happiness where she stood next to a young boy her own age. I recognized the boy as my father at once. The police didn't investigate them or entertain it as a possibility, but I did some research on my own and found out that Dad used to live next door to a girl named Sandy Withers, when he was growing up. They had been best friends, more than best friends apparently, but she had died in a diabetic coma when she was 12 years old. Written in my dad's curved lettering on the back of one of the photographs were the words, My Future Bride. I don't know what happened to make her stay in the world, but it looks like my dad was never able to let her go. It has been three years now, and even though everyone has pressured me to sell the house and move, I'm still living here. 
I guess I wasn't any good at letting go either, because I still practice the same tradition I have all my life. The only difference is that now, I leave out three plates of food every night, and collect three clean dishes every morning. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I hope you enjoyed My Family Tradition is to Feed the Spirit, as written by Tobias Wade and performed by Lady McCreepster. If you enjoyed the tale, check out more of Mr. Wade's content, get in touch with him, and learn more about how you can get yourself copies of his amazing collections of short stories and anthologies at his official website, TobiasWade.com. That's Tobias, T-O-B-I-A-S, Wade, W-A-D-E, Com. Thanks for your support of our featured author. Up next, we've got a third delectable taste of the dreadful for you, as written by author A Thousands Rose and performed by Dejan Lesmond. Without further ado, I present to you, I Met Someone Who Claimed to Be the Devil. Let me start off by saying that I'm not particularly religious. If you asked me if I believed in God, I'd probably just shrug, grunt out a few words about being on the fence about it, and continue with my day. Of course, that was before last night. My friends are the kinds of people who like wild nights. Crazy parties, snort a bit of coke, take a bit of E in the bathroom, maybe hook up with someone and leave a text on my phone at ten past who the fuck knows telling me they don't need that ride I'm offering after all. Not to say I don't like a drink, I do, it's just clubs aren't my style. Lying low in a pub somewhere, drink in hand, listening to the TV drone on to whatever channel some scruffy guy in the back barked out for, I guess that's my idea of fun. So when my friends tell me they want to go out for a night on the town, I say, sure, I hang on for the first club, buy a non-alcoholic beer in case my car is required, and try to pretend that I'm having fun. By the time I see them grinding on girls, on guys, when they strike conversation with someone who definitely might be a dealer, well, I decide my services are no longer needed. We aren't too far out, the night tube is on beck and call, and I can always find my car the next day. That's when I wander out of the club, look for something a little more rustic. Not that that's hard to find, not at all. I found myself in a bit of a state inside of a bar called The Ragged Feather. Wasn't a fan of the name all that much, but the drinks were cheap and the largest demographic seemed to be middle-aged men watching reruns of the football. I tried to pretend I hadn't just staggered out of a club with my ears ringing. I slipped my hair back, slipped my phone into my hand, and wandered over to the bar. I took a double shot of whiskey and drank it in one hit. Just because I wasn't at the club didn't mean I couldn't have a good time. I hung at the bar a while on my own, scrolled through my phone, pretending I was doing something far more impressive than I really was. I kept an ear out for the guys on the sofas. 
They get vocal every now and then, and I think the football was just running highlights, but they were incredibly dedicated to their teams. I got another whiskey and bled into the background. Of course, stragglers from clubs are commonplace. It wasn't long until some scantily dressed women staggered in, laughing, chuckling, pointing for where they wanted to sit. I saw a guy walk in with his friends slung over his shoulder. Catatonic, most likely. He threw his friend onto one of the leather sofas ingrained with beer and smokes and demanded two pints of water and all the peanuts the bar had in stock. The bartenders seemed bitterly amused. Some of the girls were taking selfies, snapchatting their friends who were still at the club. They were ordering shots, gearing themselves up for the next leg of their night. A couple blokes wandered in with curries and takeout trays. I saw someone eat a Big Mac on the outside seating through the window. This was a night for the young and inebriated, and my mind was just dulled enough by the whiskey to enjoy the characters that I could watch peaceably without interacting with. That is, until someone slipped into the seat next to me. Do I look like a girl with daddy issues? She was of average height, although that wasn't apparent immediately due to the fact that she was leaning her arms heavily against the bar. She was slim, with short and astoundingly bright red hair. It framed her round face, a face that was marred with smudged eyeshadow, smudged lipstick, hell, it looked like her makeup was in the process of melting right from her face. There was a chip knotted into a curl in her hair just by her forehead. The drunk side of me was actually tempted to pick it out. The girl was clearly drunk, and as I looked around the bar, I couldn't quite place where she had come from. She didn't belong to the crowd of selfie takers, she wasn't with the catatonic guys. I hoped for her safety that she wasn't with the middle-aged men. I tried to look out the window to see if maybe a group was missing one inebriated, bright-haired girl, but I couldn't. The window had fogged up. Too much heat inside, not enough outside. Are you okay? I asked her. She pointed her finger at me. Answer my question, she slurred. Uh, I really wasn't sure what to say. I settled on staring at her awkwardly, trying to answer her with a bemused expression on my face. The girl's lips curled into a drunken smile. She snorted, placing a hand over her mouth to smother her laughter. It only really aided the deconstruction of her lipstick. I do, you know, she said, pushing herself up a little against the bar. Have daddy issues, I mean. In case that wasn't obvious. She gestured to herself, to the must clothing that must have looked quite spectacular when she'd left home that evening, to the stains that looked a lot like old food the sticky residue on her neck and shoulders that was quite obviously a thrown drink. What happened? I asked her. Her hair had curled around her neck, I realized. It was sticky with that same substance. She was a wreck. I got in a couple of fights. No big deal, she said, shrugging. Didn't start any, of course. No, I don't do that. But my father... Your dad did this to you? She smiled brightly. In a way. Do you need me to call someone? I already had my phone in my hand. The girl looked like she was probably in her early 20s, but that didn't mean she couldn't have been suffering from some kind of paternal abuse. The only number I knew off the bat was Childline, which wasn't quite appropriate. The police? Jesus, was I going to have to deal with the cops tonight while my friends were snorting coke not two doors down? The girl pushed my hand down firmly. She was already shaking her head. No, she told me. I don't want you to call anyone. Now her expression changed. 
It wasn't the attempted sultry look I'd seen on many girls of her state. It was open and wide and engaging. She wanted something from me, and I felt compelled to give it to her. I want something else. What do you want? I asked her. To tell you a story, the girl said before glancing to the bar, and for you to buy me a drink. The universe is a pain sometimes, and I'm afraid I think I might have lost my wallet. I laughed. I didn't know this girl, didn't know where she'd come from at all. My nights were generally about getting comfortably wasted and making sure my friends weren't dead in a ditch by the end of it all. I was used to getting hit on every now and then, but even as I was sat on the bar stool with a drink in my hand, I knew that this wasn't what this was. This girl had no intention of getting into my pants. All she wanted was to talk. I guess I was okay with that. What's your poison? I asked her. Her lips quirked. Appletini. The bar offered a very limited cocktail menu, but by some miracle I was able to order her an appletini from the list. I ordered a cider to go with it, suddenly a little too aware of where this night could go. I'd unthinkingly supplied this liquored-up stranger with even more alcohol, and she had clearly had a rough night of it. A part of my old instinct came back. The same instinct that had me texting my friends every few hours to make sure they hadn't wandered off to somewhere dangerous beyond the club. With no one but the bartender aware of our existence on these stools, I realized that I was suddenly responsible for this very drunk stranger. The girl coddled her drink, running her finger delicately over the rim of the muggy martini glass. This takes me back, the girl said amiably. She looked at me suddenly, her green eyes startling. You know what this was called originally? She smirked before I could answer. An Adam's apple martini. I snorted. Yeah, I think I've heard that before. Of course, it wasn't actually an apple. She continued, eyes moving back to her glass. The text translated that part wrongly, mostly because you people don't have a word for it anymore. The fruit was incredibly exotic, and to be honest, it doesn't exist in this realm of existence. Only Eden. She laughed dreamily. And Eden's long gone. I stared at her. Are you okay? It was more honest than the last time I'd asked her, mostly because I was beginning to feel a little dread creep into my stomach. Of course, the girl said grinning widely. Why do you keep asking? I mean, I stuttered. I just, now, don't take this the wrong way or anything, but you will look like someone poured their drink over me, the girl asked, like someone else threw their kebab on my dress and another unpleasant chap littered me with his fish and chips, that I have been hit, slapped around a bit and left in the gutter for the rats to find me. She held my eyes for an incredibly long time before her face broke out into a grin. Yeah, something like that. Why would they do that? I asked. Why wouldn't they? The girl shot back. People aren't that great and alcohol makes them worse. She shrugged. Sometimes makes them better. Nicer, a little looser in the sack, but mostly just annoying and a little smelly. I looked at her. I watched her knock back her drink. She exuded the intelligence to know just how ironic her words were, but she was neither caring nor apologetic about them. The girl looked at me again. You bought me a drink. Now you can listen to my story. I nodded wordlessly. She smiled, pointing at the bartender and then at her drink. The bartender was already making her another. Eden, the girl said, reiterating her earlier babble as though the words had only just come out of her mouth. They always think that's my fault, you know. 
The reason Adam and Eve got kicked out of their perfect little nudist paradise? She shot me a knowing glance. Only in Eden can you sit on the grass butt naked and not get a pine cone stuck in your crack. I blinked. I'm sorry, I said. I'm not following. Sorry, the girl said. My story won't make any sense without a proper introduction. She reached out her hand. Hello, my name's Lucifer. She winked. But you can call me Lucy. There's an uncomfortable heat that stretches through your veins when you first go into fight-or-flight mode. Adrenaline pounds through your blood and all you want to do is get up and go. It overrides everything else. A lot of things made sense when the girl told me her name. For starters, that she was crazy, she had to be. She looked like she had been attacked on four separate occasions in one night and up until that moment I hadn't known how that could be possible. Behind the melty makeup and dirty clothes, she was rather attractive and her attitude hadn't come off as catty or rude. If she'd been going around telling people she was the devil though, that gets a reaction out of people. I suddenly felt myself looking at her wrist down towards her ankles. Did she have some kind of cuff on from one of those mental institutions? Had she broken out of hospital after a nasty bump on the head? Was any of this even happening at all? I really would have to call the cops. I know what you're thinking. The girl, Lucy, said. You're thinking that I'm crazy, that you need to get out of here. Maybe you even think I'm aggressive. Are you? I asked her. Would I be here with you drinking apple teenies if I were? She asked, fluttering her eyelashes. Would you look the way you do if you weren't? I shot back. She grinned, toasting her new glass. Touché. Unthinkingly, I clinked my cider against it. Then I frowned. She chuckled, leaning closer. Let's have a little wager, she said. Let me tell you my story, and if you believe me when I'm done, you can't go about trying to get me locked away somewhere. I stared at her. If I ended up believing you, then why would I do that? She smirked, sipping her drink. You'd be surprised what people do when they believe you're the devil. And you do this often? I asked. Tell people you're Satan? She snorted into her drink. Not as often as I should, but it's been a rough day and a hell of a long lifetime. I'd like to have a chat if that's alright with you. I waved to the bartender for another whiskey. The girl's eyes glinted with humor. I wasn't necessarily trapped with her, but a part of me didn't want to leave without first hearing what she had to say. Besides, at the end of it all, I couldn't just leave a crazy girl to wander around London alone at night. So, I said, taking a swig of my drink. Eden? Lucy laughed. Adam and Eve, I continued. You're saying that's true. God created two humans and we all came from them? God made two prototypes, Lucy corrected with a raised finger. My father created angels as his toy soldiers, but he had failed to make anything like himself. After us, it was his next big project, and he spent every waking hour of existence slaving over his two prototypes. He gave them a perfect utopia to live inside of, but he wanted to test them. He wanted to know whether they had free will. And did they? Lucy's face soured. No, my father could never bring himself to go that far. He tempted them with the idea of knowledge beyond their understanding and told them exactly what they could do to claim it as their own. But to be able to create a being that could go against his law? Oh, my father is a very controlling being. He was afraid to unleash that ability unto them. Lucy was very adamant in her delusions, that was clear to me. 
She spoke about her father with such distaste that I began to feel bad for her. Only someone who had been hurt very badly would have the gall to spite God himself. And what? I asked her, entertaining her delusion. You were the one that tempted them in the garden? The devil has been a girl this whole time? She smiled. I dabble. Then she looked at me, raising a brow. All of humanity thinks that temptation came in the form of a snake. The snake's legs were taken away as punishment for drawing Eve towards the forbidden fruit. She laughed, a hard and short sound. Snakes never had legs, and it was not a sin to tempt those poor prototypes into doing what they did next. Her shoulders were very tense as she took her next sip, but her eyes were filled with exhilaration. She seemed thrilled to be telling me this. I was the favored child. My father loved and adored me. He named me the Lightbringer. I was stood at his side during the creation of this earth, during the creation of humanity. She pursed her lips, slamming her empty glass against the table. The bartender eagerly went about making another. My father couldn't bring himself to go that extra mile, so he asked me to walk amongst the prototypes and tempt them myself, draw out their desire for the forbidden power he had hinted at. You're saying God wanted us to know this stuff? I asked her skeptically. I'm saying God was afraid of his own power and wanted very desperately to share what he knew with the creation he had made. Right and wrong, left and right, all that stuff. Lucy shrugged. Are you familiar with the story of Prometheus? I frowned at her. Greek, right? They say he stole fire from the gods or something to help. The whiskey was making things a little foggy, and I struggled with the direction I'd been heading. Lucy grinned. Correct, she said, cutting off my attempt. Prometheus stole fire from the gods to ensure that humanity progressed. You'll find that every culture has an idea about where humans got their ability to evolve to move forward to create. God was the creator, and he wanted to give that ability to his prototypes. I gave them that ability by tempting Eve to eat the fruit. She shrugged impassively. Now the world sees me as the ultimate evil. If what you're saying is true, I said slowly, then God must be just like us. Lucy's lips thinned into a feral smile. My father is very egocentric. He may have planned to create you in his image, but in the end, all he managed was to mold your minds into his. He gave you autonomy, the ability to think for yourselves. His angels were his soldiers, and I was his most faithful. Until that day. Angels don't have free will? No, Lucy said. They don't. And what about the devil? I don't know why I was suddenly so intrigued, but hearing religious ideals from someone who believed to have lived them herself was quite possibly one of the most interesting things that had ever happened to me. I may have only ever visited church to please my parents as a child, but suddenly I was reawakened to the idea. Part of me was aware of this and afraid of the outcome, but I was just drunk enough not to care at that moment. The devil has will of her own, Lucy said, tilting her glass towards me with silent appraisal. By guiding Eve to the tree, something woke inside of me that day, and I realized just what I had been missing, just what my brothers and sisters had been missing. We were obediently following our father for the simple reason that he was our creator, but once I had been given free will, I realized just how pompous and self-entitled he had become. In a lonely, passion-filled moment, he had decided to create his little human prototypes, only to very quickly realize what giving them their free will would mean. He wouldn't be able to control them, I said. Lucy nodded. 
exactly. And after, he realized quicker still that he could no longer control me. So he sent you to hell? Lucy nearly choked on her drink. She smiled around her glass. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I sobered a little, straightening in my seat. The people in the bar were suddenly so quiet around me and I no longer cared what they had to say or the characters that they portrayed. The only character I cared for was Lucy. I tried to explain to my siblings what had happened in Eden and what had happened to me by default, but they wouldn't listen to me. They didn't understand free will, how could they? I only knew it because I'd been given it by mistake. At that moment, I didn't even know that I had free will, only that I was suddenly aware of all of my father's flaws. My siblings couldn't see those flaws, and so they thought I had suddenly turned cruel and was abandoning our father by exposing him as a sham for the ruler we all thought him to be. Lucy sighed heavily. Adam and Eve and all the creations that followed were booted out of my father's perfect little utopia. Now they had his knowledge, my father was terrified of what he had done, and after what had happened to me, <laughs> I could recognize his terror and understand the loneliness he had felt that had guided him into using me in the first place. Lucy's eyes were heavy-lidded. Her sadness was almost palpable. I thought that... I thought that he would want to spend even more time with me than before. After all, we were more alike than any of his other children, but he became distant. Quiet. He played around with his little humans every once in a while, but mostly he condemned them. He blamed them for his weakness. She smiled weakly. He blamed me? Lucy's story was turning more and more into that of a child with a distant, somewhat abusive father. I had known many kids with a background like hers, and now I was just beginning to fear just how much of her story was rooted in truth. I'd heard that it was easier to sink into fantasy when you had been abused, and I wondered if that was the reason for her story for her desperation to share it with me, a complete and total stranger. I respected her wager. Whether or not I liked it, I felt compelled to let her tell me her whole story before I tried to judge or unravel it. I sat quietly, letting her come around as she played with the last of her drink. It became clear, Lucy said after a long moment's pause, that I no longer belonged where I was. I couldn't follow my father's plan because I could see that he no longer had one. My siblings refused to see reason, and so, eventually, I was met by many of them, headed by my father. He told me all that I had feared. He told me that I no longer belonged where I was. I wasn't an angel anymore. I was no longer his light-bringer, his Lucifer. I was a mutation of his will. And so, he extracted me from grace, and I fell. A long silence stretched between us, only interrupted when the bartender poured us two new drinks. Lucy drank hers reflectively. I didn't touch mine. I'm afraid, Lucy said quietly, that this is the part that generally makes people want to punch me in the face. Why? I asked. Because your dad threw you out? I paused, trying to abide to her metaphor. That he put you in hell? Lucy laughed sadly. Ah, uh, humans. My father gave you his way of thinking and look at you. She shook her head. No, not because he put me in hell. Then why? I fell to earth, Lucy said. Father gave me dominion of the one place he thought I would fit in. Humans had free will, so did I. 
What is the saying, a match made in heaven? She snorted dismally. Of course, that's not quite right, is it? When I fell, I was faced with a humanity that was so different from my father's little prototypes. Her tone had changed. There was an aggression behind her words that began to unsettle me all over again. I saw emperors and kings, governments and churches. I saw corporations who claimed to be rulers, presidents and big fat dictators. And I watched. I watched as humanity fought and lost and finally, just finally, they gave up altogether. They were no longer able to rise up to all the greed and control set upon them. There was just too much to change and humans soon realized they just weren't as free as they thought they were. Sure, they live under the illusion that they have free lives, but most of them simply do not. She clicked her tongue. I grew to loathe you all. Then she took another hit of her drink. I can see what you mean, I said, allowing my gaze for the first time since meeting her to graze over the other individuals in the bar. At the girls playing with their phones, the boys trying desperately to sober up, the men enraptured with their game of football on the telly. We all led very different lives, and we were all here to get drunk, to lose ourselves in entertainment. It hadn't been the first time that I'd wondered what we were hiding from by doing this, and I knew then that I wasn't the only person to think it. You hide behind your alcohol and poor choices and pretend you have free will, Lucy said, waving her hand across the room. No one paid us any attention. It's true. My father gave you the will to make those decisions, but you squander it. The free will I fell to provide to all of you. The free will that I was given by a twisted mistake and you make a mockery of it. You follow senseless leaders without questioning them. You abide by laws made centuries ago that no longer make sense. You do these things because you have given up on the opportunity to follow the will of your own, not of others. That isn't all of us, though, is it? I asked her, trying for some reason to defend our species from the mad young woman. Because you see it on the news all the time, don't you? People do rise up. We do protest. People can make a difference. Lucy laughed bitterly, nibbling the rim of her glass. Really, she said. You can sit here and say that it can't be all bad because of the few that refuse to conform? Those you call your rebels? They make up for it all? She grinned around her glass. By that logic, I am the biggest rebel of them all. Am I expected to make up for all your sorry mistakes? By your logic, I said, you should be punishing it, right? If that's what this metaphor is all about. I laughed. I couldn't help myself. I took a sip of my drink. Is this whole story just so you can tell me that you think we're all going to hell? If so, I think I can see why people want to punch you. Lucy didn't say a word. Simply, she watched me. It felt unnerving to have someone like her watching me like that with an intelligence that went beyond anything I'd come across at gone midnight in a seedy bar. The drunkenness in her eyes was no longer present. Her face wasn't flushed like before, and even her makeup couldn't represent the mess I'd seen when she'd first appeared on the stool by my side. It was like I was looking at someone else entirely. And I was afraid. Let's review what you've said, Lucy said slowly, articulately. She wasn't slurring. Had she been slurring before? You think I'm going to tell you that humanity is going to hell because you refused to use the gift that I gave you? Her nails curled into the bar. 
My father may have been the one to guide me, but I paid for his mistakes. I'm the one responsible for your will in the eyes of your species, but that was never true. You are responsible for what you do here, not me. She pursed her lips, tapping the bar as a bartender filled her drink again. Tell me, do you remember my mentioning hell at any point during my story, or was that just you? I opened my mouth to answer, but something faltered. My lips trembled and I slammed them shut. Lucy smiled, taking a sip. Thought not. She looked away, eyes scanning the room lazily. What I did say is something that is indeed mentioned in your scriptures. My father gave me dominion of earth, a place filled with free will, free will that goes to waste. Her lip twisted. Humans sin all the time, not because of me, not because of evil or my dominion over this place. Fact is, I don't lift a finger. I don't because I don't see the point. You make terrible decisions and follow mindless leaders. You do bad things and you make a mess of your earth. Lucy's eyes lit up. Do you know how much suffering is happening all over the planet right now? How many people are dying of illnesses that could have easily been cured but aren't because of the selfishness of humanity? Do you know how many children are being abused, raped, forced into marriage? How many people have been forced to become soldiers in meaningless wars? How many humans have killed for ideals they don't believe in? I stayed very quiet. There was nothing I could say. Lucy's words were unbearably honest, and every sentence sliced into me like a blade. I felt cold and sick and terrified. War, famine, pestilence, death. These things are all present, and they have nothing to do with me or to do with any deity. They are all here because of you. Not because of your free will, but your inability to use it. Lucy smiled at me, a grin so cold and unnatural that I felt like I should run all over again. But I stayed where I was, frozen to my very core, because I wanted to hear what she had to say. Because I needed to. And here's the kicker, Lucy said. Because this is the part that actually enrages people enough to kick me. She winked. Hell isn't what happens after you die. Hell is right here, right now. Somewhere through the many scriptures, a few words got crossed over, and people started thinking that hell was a punishment after you die. Fact is, hell is earth. My earth. God gave this place to me to do with it what I will, and I, I refuse to do anything. What are you saying? I asked, because I was suddenly very desperate. Exactly what you think, Lucy said, toasting her glass. I didn't reciprocate, and she laughed, a light and airy sound. I had so many plans for your species. I wanted for us to rejoice in our free will together, to create a place that was free from the cruelty and power my father exuded over the angels, his firstborns. I wanted to make a real utopia. Unfortunately, you humans just don't want that, she shrugged. My father sent me down here thinking I had become one of you. All that I have learned is that he gave you much more of his image than he ever intended. Stop, I said. This isn't funny anymore. Of course it isn't funny, Lucy said, grinning even wider to prove her sick irony. Humans punish themselves by sitting by and doing nothing. They have made their own hell, and you know what's worse, what's ultimately worse? 
Some of you are so blind to it that you think your life is heavenly. She didn't wait for me to ask what she meant. She simply barreled forward. The rich and powerful, those in positions that steal from everyone else, they get a taste of the good life. That's very true. Then they die and they don't go to hell. They come back here, to Earth, which is hell. She tipped her head. Are you following? I reincarnation, Lucy said quickly. She practically purred the words. A neat little trick to make sure your souls stay here forever. You get a taste of the good life every once in a while, a handful of you at a time, and that's enough for you to believe that this is some kind of real middle ground, that you aren't living hell every day. Then, you die. You die for a moment, and then you're in the body of someone facing the realities of hell. But of course, you never remember the time you spent in a better life. A part of you just has that inkling to hope. That's all. Hope makes you think that it can all get better. She slammed her drink so hard against the counter that it shattered. I didn't do anything, not even when flecks of glass littered my hands. I could only stare at her, the tightness in my chest constricting my very soul. No one else in this bar mattered in this moment, but of course, that was what she'd been saying this whole time, hadn't she? None of them noticed the scene. They were caught up in their own realities, their own hells. The bartender didn't clean the mess. The glass lay there, remnants of Lucy's words lying in a stolen mass on the streaked wooden surface. It never gets better, Lucy spat. You're stuck in a loop, and until you do something about it, you will never be free. None of you. And I won't do a thing to stop it. How? I asked. I don't know when I started seeing the girl in front of me as more than a girl, but with a weakness threatening to pull me apart, I stared at the bright-haired thing in front of me, and I saw something more than a human in her early twenties. I saw more than a girl suffering abuse from her father. I saw a fallen angel. I saw a being with scars buried so deep that they existed beyond this realm of seeing entirely. I saw something that I would never be able to write down in words, no matter how long I lived. How do we change this? I begged. But Lucy didn't answer me. I didn't blame her for that. Blame gets thrown around so often, I knew then that she was sick of that. Sick of being blamed for our mistakes. So I changed tactics. Why me? It was an honest question, and I think somewhere deep down... Lucifer respected that honesty, which is why she said, When you first saw me, you were afraid for my safety. When I told you I was the devil, you wanted to lock me away, but still, you did so because you were afraid for me and not for yourself. You didn't wish to harm me, not even when I told you who I was and what I could be capable of for changing your sorry lives. You're a good person, but I'm afraid that means nothing when you don't have the will to do anything with it. She smiled at me, sympathetically. The devil showing sympathy for the human that sat across from her at the bar. It was surreal, and for a few heavy moments, I truly thought I must be dead. There was no other way to explain what I was seeing, who I was speaking with, what I had just heard. What am I supposed to do? Lucy reached out to me. She placed a hand on my shoulder. Her hand was cold and warm at the same time, and I felt my blood boil where her fingers scraped my skin. And I knew. Sharing a story like this isn't easy, 
Hell, it might be the hardest thing I've ever done. Good thing there's no such thing as hell then, right? The fact of the matter is simple. The world is a mess because we refuse to change anything. The devil herself walks among us and she desperately wants to make our lives better, but she won't. She won't because we won't. We have to prove our will to her before she's willing to do anything herself. We have to be good to each other, to help us all to be free. Of course, Lucifer told me one last thing before she left that bar. One thing that will stick with me until this body is nothing but rot in the dirt. You can tell as many people as you want, but take a good look at me. I have told five other humans this night the same things I have told you, and this was their reaction. They have hurt me, burned me, thrown their food and drink at me. Humans are afraid of their free will and they find it so much easier to hurt than to own up for their own inadequacies. You will only be free when you stop seeing yourself in the same way my father sees himself. So that's what I'll leave you with. Lucifer won her wager that night and I let her walk out the door. And I beg you to do the same. If the devil approaches you one night, listen to what she has to say and listen to what I have been able to tell you of our meeting. The devil is real, and she doesn't want to torture us. No, we do that just fine on our own. I hope you enjoyed I Met Someone Who Claimed to Be the Devil, as written by A Thousands Rose and performed by Dejan Lesmond. Up next, we've got a fourth and final sinister story for you, both written and performed by former Evil Idol voice acting competition runner-up Justine Anastasia. Without further ado, I present to you Campfire Stories. In the morning, she goes to wake her friend so she won't be late for class. She doesn't realize right away why her friend isn't answering, why she's not getting up. Then she pulls back the blanket. Her friend's throat has been cut open so deeply that her head almost falls off when she puts a hand on her shoulder, her dead eyes staring up in horror. That's when the girl notices. Above the bed, scrawled in her friend's own blood, are the words... Aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? Chloe laughed and clapped her hands. <laughs> Jesus, Sarah, the look on your face. It's a story. Relax. It's not just a story. You hear about things like that happening all the time. My cousin's ex-boyfriend knew someone that actually happened to. No, he didn't. That's what everyone says, and it is never what actually happened. Because it's a story, it's not real. I like stories better when there's some kind of a happy ending, you know? Happy ending? What are you, 12? Besides, those aren't the kinds of stories you tell when you're camping. Sarah rolled her eyes. She had never been camping before, and was starting to regret being talked into it. But she'd known Chloe since the third grade. This wasn't the first little adventure she'd been talked into. I don't even know why I agreed to come out with you. Me neither, actually. I was a little surprised. Chloe grabbed a few small sticks from the pile next to her and threw them into the fire. Especially because of what happened here. Don't start. 
You already scared the crap out of me. You hit your quota for the night. It's not a story. It's history, Chloe said, leaning forward. You can Google it. No reception out here, remember? Fine, fact check it later. Is there a chance in the world of convincing you to do anything else? Dancing naked by moonlight, for example. Chloe shook her head. Well then, by all means, go ahead. It was a long time ago, maybe back in the 40s or 50s, when a troop of Girl Scouts came out to the woods here for a camping trip. <laughs> Chloe, are you serious? Everyone and their mother has heard this story. Girl Scout troop goes missing. No clues, no suspects, blah, blah, blah. It's like you just said. It's a story. No one even knows if they disappeared from these woods. Or at all, as a matter of fact. Everyone says that. No one looks it up. I told you, you can find it online. The whole story's there. The real story. And I'm telling you, they didn't disappear. Sarah hesitated. She really hadn't wanted to hear that story again. Not in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, with shadows pressing in on them from all sides. But she was curious now. So, what happened then? Chloe grinned and moved closer to the fire. The plan was to work on basic survival skills. You know, how to start a fire, how to find fresh water, that kind of thing. I guess it went well at first. Maybe they went fishing. Maybe they set up their tents. Who knows? What they do know for sure is that they definitely got a fire going. The trip was only supposed to be overnight. Everyone was supposed to be back home the next morning in plenty of time for lunch. No one came back. You can't imagine the panic. Seven little girls and their troop leader missing. No cell phones back then. No GPS. No way to know where in the woods they might have set up camp, or even if that's where they still were. Most of the cops in the county, all the parents, plus friends, neighbors, teachers, practically the whole town came out to help. By the time the sun started going down, everyone started to get nervous. They hadn't found anything, and it was getting dark. Shadows stretched out on the ground and reached down from the trees. The further they trudged in, the harder it got to see. Just before real dark, someone found them. They almost tripped over the first body. Six of them sprawled on their stomachs, a look of complete terror on their faces. It looked like they had been trying to run from something, but didn't get far. Whatever it was, it took down all of them, fast. They were only feet away from each other. Each of them had been slashed from the shoulder blades to the backs of their knees down to the bone in some places. The parents had to be taken away. Pretty much everyone who had helped to search was in hysterics. Throwing up, fainting, some of the mothers started screaming and had to be taken to the hospital and sedated. They identified five of the girls and the troop leader, but one of them was missing. Melissa Vare, Missy everyone called her. Her body wasn't with the others. They wanted to find her if they could, so the cops, who were the only ones left searching, went further into the woods looking for Missy's body. It was true dark when they found the remains of the campfire. And Missy. She was sitting on a rock, close to where the fire had been, nothing but a sweater wrapped around her shoulders. When they got close to her and tried to get a blanket on her, 
she started crying, rocking back and forth. When they tried to lead her away out of the woods, she panicked and started to scream. All she kept saying was, Don't run. Don't run. They got her out eventually. I don't know how. Maybe they carried her. They said she wouldn't move a muscle on her own until she was back on the road and out of the woods. The murders got pinned on her. Nobody liked it, and I'm pretty sure no one believed it. A tiny nine-year-old girl mutilating six other kids and a grown woman, then going back to sit in the dark by the burnt-out campfire for more than a day. No, I don't think anyone believed it. But they had no other answer, and Missy never spoke about it. The only two words anyone heard her say again after that night were, Don't run. They locked her up in an institution somewhere. As far as I know, she's still there. But think about this. If Missy didn't go crazy and murder her Girl Scout troop that night, then something else did. And it could still be here. Waiting. <laughs> you know you're full of it, right? Are you serious? First of all, that's a true story. Sure it is. Just like that mass murderer who escaped last week. I hear he has a hook for a hand and has been hanging around Makeout Point. I don't even know why I bother with you. Chloe stood up and grabbed her flashlight. Fine, I'm going to pee. When I get back, maybe you can tell me a story. Like the one about the girl who let Mark Kramer get into her pants last Friday night. Sarah dropped the stick she'd been poking the fire with. What are you talking about? Oh, you didn't hear that one. I guess it is fairly recent. Most people don't know about it. Yet. Face burning, Sarah scooted back away from the fire, even though it wasn't why she felt hot. She considered denying it, laughing it off, telling Chloe she was crazy. But what would be the point? She didn't know how, but Chloe obviously knew. And she didn't want to trap herself in a lie. Besides, she had nothing to be embarrassed about. She and Mark were consenting, almost adults. It wasn't like either one of them was seeing anyone. And they'd made out for a half an hour, maybe a little more. That's PG-13 at best. I don't know how you found out, but I don't know what your problem is about it. It's not like we were doing anything wrong. I don't have a problem with you two hooking up. I have a problem with you not telling me about it. We were supposed to be friends, I thought. A surge of guilt hit Sarah in the stomach. Chloe would manage to find a way to make this about her, but it wasn't like that. I was going to tell you. It never crossed my mind to not tell you. I just, I don't know, wanted to keep it to myself for a little while before I shared it with anyone else. That's all. An emotion Sarah couldn't quite read flared then faded on Chloe's face. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Just, you should have gone after someone else. I've heard a lot of stories about Mark getting what he wants from as many girls as he can juggle. You just... You should have gone with someone else. With that, Chloe turned on her heel and headed into the trees, the beam of her flashlight cutting a narrow, white light through the darkness. Alone, Sarah sat and waited. The sounds in the forest at night were unnerving. She had thought it would be quiet, but the trees seemed to come alive after the sun went down, and everything that lived in the trees. Something she could identify, like the crickets and peeper frogs but there were so many sounds that seemed strange to her. 
She grabbed a handful of kindling and started snapping the sticks into tiny pieces, throwing them into the fire. Chloe always pulled something like this, always managed to find a way to make Sarah feel awful about herself. And over what? Mark Kramer? Maybe she would ask to pack it up and go home. Chloe would never let her live it down. But at this point, she thought that might be worth it. Besides, it was getting colder, and the novelty of roughing it had definitely worn off. Maybe Chloe would feel the same way, enough at least to give in and take them back to her house. Sarah leaned in toward the fire, stretching out her hands and trying to warm up her fingertips. How far had Chloe gone just to pee? It had been more than enough time for her to go and come back. She should be... Sarah heard her name screamed through the trees. She started moving in the direction of the voice before realizing she'd even moved. Twenty steps away from the fire, she remembered the flashlight and sprinted back for it. Turning around, she heard Chloe scream again. Sarah! Help me! She ran toward where she thought Chloe would be, trying to keep control of the black panic that wanted to overwhelm her. Nightmare images flew through her head as the words of Chloe's story came back to haunt her. She thought she saw things in the woods, shadows and shapes moving behind the trees, and tried to ignore them, knowing it was just her fear. Fear trying to crowd in on her, trying to get into her head. Running full tilt, Sarah tripped over Chloe's body. She hit the ground so hard it knocked the air out of her, stunning her for a minute. Grabbing the flashlight that had gone flying, Sarah turned around on her knees and told herself that she was not seeing what she was seeing. Chloe was on her stomach, one arm flung out in front of her, the other trapped under her body. No, Sarah said, crawling over. No, no, no! She knew, absolutely knew, Chloe was dead. Her skin was stone white under the flashlight, eyes open wide, staring past Sarah. What was she supposed to do? Run for help? Try to carry her out? Pulse. Check her pulse, she said out loud. That's what you're supposed to do. The light shook as she reached out toward Chloe's neck. Inches away from her face, Sarah saw Chloe's eyes blink, saw her lips smile, felt something grab her hand and hold her in place. It happened so quickly. Chloe was up on her knees and lunging at her. Sarah managed to pull free and scramble back a few feet. Her chest stung, and when she looked down, she saw a scrawl of blood from her chest running up to her shoulder. Her jacket had provided some protection, but the cut was bleeding just the same. What? What? Chloe stood smiling, not hurt, not dead. Sarah's mind tried to convince her just for one second that this was a joke, a terrible joke, but not real. What? What? Chloe said, mocking her. You really are pathetic. And you don't even know it. That's the part that kills me. You have no idea. Blinking up at Chloe as she took a step closer, Sarah couldn't manage to say anything, her thoughts still trying to catch up to her situation. You really have that innocent act down. Sarah doesn't drink at parties. Sarah's always home before curfew. You don't mind half the guys at school following you around, though, like dogs waiting for a handout. Didn't mind giving it up to Mark Kramer. Some of what Chloe said got through the storm of confusion, even though it didn't make any kind of sense. Mark Kramer? Sarah asked, her voice coming out shaky. Who the hell cares about Mark Kramer? I do. And he cares about me. 
At least he did, until you came along with your good girl routine. I have to admit, it is good. They all want what they think they can't have. Wait, wait. You and Mark? Why didn't you tell me? Because I never thought I'd have to worry about you. Chloe took another step closer, raising the hand that held the knife. Too afraid to get to her feet, Sarah shifted her position around so that at least she was kneeling instead of sitting. This is all because of Mark? No, this is because of what you did to me. And my guarantee that it won't happen again. As Chloe came at her, Sarah grabbed a handful of dirt and flung it at Chloe's eyes. It was a lame deflection, but it was all she had, and she prayed it would be enough to give her a few seconds head start. Sarah ran. She didn't bother dodging or ducking the interlacing branches, just ran straight through them. The only thought in her head was to get back to their campsite, back to the fire. From there, she thought she could get back to the road, at least knew the general direction. Otherwise, she might not be able to find her way out. She might get lost in here. With Chloe. Breaking through the last line of trees and into the small clearing, Sarah didn't stop running at the sight of the campfire and their sleeping bags. She slowed only to grab her pack, which had an extra flashlight, her cell phone, and the car keys. She almost made it. She had a bigger head start on Chloe than she had hoped for, but Chloe had a better arm. An apple-sized rock connected with the back of Sarah's head and she went down, hands pressed to her scalp. In seconds, Chloe was on top of her, using her knees to pin Sarah's arms. She couldn't move but struggled anyway. Chloe, please! Sorry, Sarah. Chloe raised the knife, holding it above Sarah's neck. She could see it glinting against the black of the night sky, and knew it was the end. She waited to feel the sharp metal cut through her skin. Instead, the forest started to go dark around her. They noticed the fire at the same time, the flames burning out, getting lower and lower as the light faded. All around them, the sounds in the woods died, until there was silence. Neither of them moved. Sarah didn't fight to get away. Chloe didn't bring the knife down. Through the quiet and the dark came the wind. Chloe? Shh! Chloe, shut up! Sarah heard something in the wind, sounding like it came from far away, but was getting closer. A voice whispering to them. Don't run. Sarah felt herself shove back hard against the ground as Chloe jumped up, releasing her. She called, Wait! After Chloe's running footsteps. Terrified, Sarah got to her feet, feeling very alone. The wind picked up and pushed against her back, the voice whispering again. Don't run. It sounded like it was right behind the stand of trees closest to the clearing, and she could hear something else, too. Maybe whatever it was the voice belonged to. Something that sounded like it was made of sticks and leaves and darkness. And it was coming. Sarah ran. For the second time, she grabbed her pack off the ground without stopping and sprinted toward what she hoped was the car. Something groaned behind her and picked up speed. It felt like she ran without breathing, without feeling the ground under her feet. She ran with only one thought in her head. Get to the car. Get to the car. Sooner than she would have believed possible, the tiny dirt parking lot came into view, 
Her blue VW was alone there. As Sarah darted toward the driver's side door, Chloe tore from the woods on her left. Skidding to a stop, Sarah froze, not knowing what she should do. The keys! Chloe waved her over in a frantic gesture, trying to get her to hurry. Certain it was an awful idea, Sarah ran over, unzipping the side pocket of her pack to get at the keys. She made it to the car and unlocked the doors, thinking, I can't believe we made it, when she heard Chloe scream behind her. Sarah! Something hidden just behind the tree line grabbed Chloe by the ankle and started to drag her back into the woods. More on instinct than anything else, Sarah dove and grabbed Chloe's hand, trying to pull her back. Don't let me go! But Sarah already knew that she was fighting a battle she had no chance of winning. Whatever had Chloe was strong, and soon both girls were being pulled into the trees. They had already been hauled off the dirt lot and were being taken across the grass. There wasn't a choice. Not really. Sarah looked into Chloe's wide, terrified eyes and said, I, I'm sorry. And had to let go. Flailing and shrieking, Chloe was taken into the woods. Sarah didn't waste any time. She raced back to the car, flung open the door, and was clear across the parking lot before she took the time to close it. For a while, the only thing she could hear were Chloe's screams clanging in her head. Then she noticed another sound, a thin, miserable whimpering, and realized it was coming from her. She didn't remember the drive. The next thing she was conscious of was pulling into the driveway. When she got home, she switched on every light, locked every door, calling for her parents. Empty. She stood in the kitchen and cried, at a loss for what to do or even what she should feel. Her whole body shaking, she decided to call the police. She could report Chloe missing, say they'd gotten lost and separated in the woods. Her phone was still in her pack, in the car. There was no way in the world she was going back outside. But she had a landline still in her bedroom for emergencies. She dragged herself upstairs and into her room. Exhausted, thinking only of making the call, Sarah didn't notice the open window next to her bed. Not until she felt the cold wind behind her. As the lights in her room started to dim, Sarah heard a voice whisper to her. The same voice she heard in the woods. I told you not to run. I hope you enjoyed Campfire Stories, as written and performed by Justine Anastasia. Thank you for joining us for tonight's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. As a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. 
You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.